right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We spoke back in August about his book titled Crime, Quick and Easy Ways to Avoid Becoming a Victim. His name is Robert L. Bryan. But today we're going to talk about another book. Uh, title of that book is Sea Case, An Unlikely Journey from Transit Cop to Internal Affairs Bureau Squad Commander. And again, the author's name is Robert L. Bryan. Really interesting book traces his uh, career and some of the really interesting things he did for the IAB or the Internal Affairs Bureau. So I'm delighted to have them back. So Robert Bryan, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for returning. For people who may not have heard our earlier interview, can you talk kind of a little bit about your career and what led you to write this book, Seacase? Well, I've... Uh spent my entire adult life in uh, law enforcement and security. I had started off uh, after leaving college, after graduating college, I spent a couple of years on the Mexican border as a border patrol agent. And then I'm a lifelong New Yorker. So that was the only time I was out of New York City. And when I returned, I uh, joined the uh, New York City Transit Police Department. I did 20 years there, retiring at the rank of captain. And it's during the time after I become a lieutenant is when I went into uh, two years with the Internal Affairs Bureau. Gotcha, and they kind of had this assignment where they make you become an IAB member, right? Yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting uh, thing at the time because this was right after as I said, I was a member of the New York City Transit Police. Um, New York City for most of the 20th century uh, before, until uh, when the other departments began to exist had three separate police departments. You always had, since the middle of the 1800s, had the New York City Police Department, but in the 1930s and then shortly thereafter, um, the New York City Transit Police and the New York City Housing Police came into existence. Uh, so transit dealt with uh, policing the subways while housing was the New York City uh, housing projects. So in 1995, however, there was a merger which brought all three departments together under the New York City Police Department. So in 1995, when this merger occurred, I was a lieutenant. So at that time, I was working in a, uh, a what became a patrol command in the Transit Bureau and I had learned that the New York City Police Department had a career path for sergeants and lieutenants where you would apply for an investigative position with the caveat that was known. I, I went into this with my eyes wide open. This wasn't a surprise, was that anybody who was accepted into this before you could get into either the uh, Organized Crime Control Bureau or the Detective uh, Bureau, you would have to do two years drafted into the Internal Affairs Bureau. Right. So you had to you had to go into the separate bureau that investigates the other police. Can you talk about what it was like just uh, beginning in that? I think you went in as, as a in an authoritative position, right? You had to kind of manage other people who were already there, right? Yeah, when it is lieutenant and the basic uh, the basic formation of an IAB group, they're, they're called groups. I was in group 27, uh, is there are several teams of investigators that are headed by uh, a lieutenant who's the commander of that squad. So when I went in as a lieutenant, I became 
the commander of one of the squads within Group 27. And it was um, something that was very, very challenging because I was coming from, not only was I coming from just several months earlier being with the Transit Police Department, but my time had been on patrol and I had done some time as a police academy instructor also, but I really had no real investigative background. And now I was thrown into a position where I was managing a squad of seasoned sergeants and detectives who had worked many years in uh, detective squads, in the narcotics division, uh, in organized crime control. So that was a, that was a very challenging uh, assignment. So they had all these experience. So some of these other people were not on the same career path as you, right? They came from other departments or got assigned there from other places. Is that correct? Well, no, pretty much everybody got assigned the same way. But like, for instance, the sergeants that I had in my squad, um, one of them had been a detective in um, what's known as OSID, the uh, Organized Crime Investigation Division, which is a, it's an elite investigative unit. Now, when he made sergeant, he is, you know, not going back to OSID. He's going out on patrol and he has to, like anybody else, he has to put in now for this career path as a, as a sergeant or lieutenant. So when he gets selected, he has to do his two years in IEB just like anybody else. So the thing was, though, I was kind of unique in that a lot of other people that were going through their two years were coming with a background as detectives before they got promoted to sergeant. I see. So you had done the transit and they had come from a different kind of angle. But I mean, you've talked to some of these other guys that were very experienced interrogators and detectives. And so you kind of had to, you could basically kind of were thrown into it like sink or swim, right? Yeah, and that's where I, I had to write from the start. I had to make a, a decision that if this was going to work for me, I, I certainly couldn't go in there and try to fake that I, you know, I knew it all because I knew very little, especially compared with the knowledge that was in my team. And so I, I tried to manage the actual logistics of the unit, the case assignments, keeping up with um, you know, how a case was going and assignments and closing cases while I learned from them actually how to run an investigation. So you had to do that. And I think you said like each person in your 20 of the squad had almost 25 files they were working on concurrently right. at the same time. Can you talk about what it was like kind of juggling all those different investigations and, and working within the group? I like to my uh, my my first commanding officer of the group the way he put it and the way that I I thought about it because this kind of re you know I I kind of grabbed onto this and said it makes sense he said this case management is like a merry-go-round he said when when cases come in they get assigned they get thrown onto the merry-go-round and now your job is to try to pull them off the merry-go-round as quickly as you can thoroughly investigate them but don't keep them on that merry-go-round for any, any minute longer than they, than they have to be. Right. And I think you said that when you came in, you assigned somebody a case and he said, you should take this case because this will give you some experience, right? Can you talk Correct. about that first case? Yeah. The, um, the first case that I went out on that I was with was, uh, that was one of the more interesting ones because it, it actually, 
and again, I, I, I had to learn this also that, that many times there were cases that when you started getting used to it, that you just kind of knew by the allegation, you had to be objective with it, but you kind of knew that it was going to go no place either. Either it was obvious that there was nothing there, or even if there was something there, there was no way you were going to be able to prove it one way or the other. But sometimes like with this first case, there was a, a live complainant. There was a gentleman who was an account accountant and he sounded very credible on the phone. And when I was interviewing him on the phone, his allegation was that there was a, um, an NYPD sergeant who had broken into his apartment and was stealing possessions, property out of his apartment that he had done this on more than one occasion. Now that's a very bizarre allegation to begin with, but he sounded very credible and it even became more bizarre when I went with a sergeant to interview him and he was in a, a high rise apartment building in Queens. It was, it was a nice building, a nice building. And um, he was up on one of like, I'll say maybe the 15th, 16th floor, one of the higher floors. And when he let us in again, everything was making sense as far as he was articulate, he was lucid. He, you know, was very, you know, uh, by the numbers and talking about what had happened. But as I'm talking to him and I'm trying to figure out because it looks like this is an apartment. There's only the front door to get into the apartment and there's a balcony and the balcony is 15 floors up. And I can't grasp how this sergeant would be getting in if he wasn't coming through the door. So I finally get around to really pressing them on. I, I said, sir, I'm not really grasping this. If he's not coming in through the door, I said, he's coming in through that 15th floor balcony here. And he just matter of factly says no. And I said, you're really losing me here. If he's not coming in through the door, he's not coming in through the, through the balcony. How is he getting in here? And he just very matter of factly said, oh no, he comes in my dreams. And at that point, I was said, okay, um, you know, let's wrap this up. But my partner at the time, the sergeant, he was going to begin now because he wanted to have some fun with this as far as, um, you know, asking him, what does he do? What does he say? And, uh, and the guy was very seriously answering all these questions. Uh, you know, he, uh, oh yeah, he, uh, sometimes he curses at me. Sometimes he says, I see your underwear. And, uh, so it just, you know, that's, that was the opening case where I realized that, you know, not everything here is going to be a crime of the century and probably like most of them was going to end up being nothing. Right. And I mean, you're kind of in that thing where you're investigating the other police officers. What is the opinion of the internal affairs while you were there amongst, you know, the blue line or as, as so to speak? Well, that's why, that's why, in my opinion, that the MYP went to this draft system for, uh, for sergeants and lieutenants because, um, you know, naturally IAB is not a very popular assignment, not a very popular uh, unit within the police department because, you know, whether it's in police culture or any other culture, I mean, let's face it, one of the worst things you can be perceived as is a rat. And, you know, of course, if you have any type of a logical thought process, you have to understand that any police department, especially a department as large as the NYPD needs some kind of an internal investigation uh, branch uh, to, because anytime, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of cops. I, 
you know, uh, I, I don't think there's a more noble profession on the planet. But if you put at the time, there was 40,000 people in the NYPD, you put 40,000 apples in any in barrels, you're going to find a whole bunch of rotten ones, certainly not going to be near the majority. Same thing, the, the, the you know, probably well over 95, 98% of cops are hardworking, doing the right thing. But you do have the, the police departments a microcosm of society. You know, so just like you have murderers, drug abusers, drug sellers, uh, you know, domestic abusers in society, you're going to find them in a department with 40,000 people. So, but still, there wasn't, will always be a stigma attached to working internal affairs. And I think that draft system helped to fight that stigma a bit because, you know, people realized after a while that when you were in IAB, you were going through that two-year draft. Right. So you weren't in a position of total antagonism. You were in a right. short, short, you know, kind of doing your duty in getting out. And you, I mean, you had so many different cases too. Like you had the full swath from murder to insurance fraud to criminality, um, shoplifting. Can you talk about that? I mean, one of the introductory chapters is the guy who uh, had some kind of uh, interesting insurance claims. Can you talk about like some of your investigations, that one in particular? Yeah, that one, um, you know, and, and these, when I said before that I spoke to the claimant on the phone, we're not just answering phones that some somebody's got our number and calls in a complaint. Everything in IAB works through what's called the action desk. Whether it comes in because a police officer in the field is given the allegation from a member of the public and he or she reports it, whether it, 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 whether it comes from a letter to the police commissioner, however the complaint comes in, it works its way to the action desk, which was a unit in IAB headquarters. Then they assess it. They assess what the complaint is, and then they send it out as they seem appropriate, whether it, as they deem appropriate, whether it should be sent out as, which is the title of the book, as a C case, which is a corruption case, which is the, you know, the bread and butter of IED investigations. That's something which, if it was proven, could be a crime or would be a crime. There were less serious ones that were M cases, some type of misconduct. There could be complaints from other departments, other city agencies that were, they never just told, never told a complainant, we don't take this. They always took the complaint and referred it as, as necessary. But in this case, the, the, they call them the log. We'd get logs that would come in and say, you know, uh, C number C14528. And it says, gives the information on it. And in this case, there was an insurance investigator had uh, called, made a complaint to, uh, to actually to IAB Direct that um, this police officer had made a really absurd insurance claim. And when you looked into it, it really was because it, it ended up um, the, uh, it started off with was a fender bender and all the documentation, it was an off duty fender bender, by the way, and all the documentation from the accident report. And it was in Nassau County, not in New York City. Everything was reflective as an actual, just a fender bender. Somebody, it really was an accident this elderly gentleman had just kind of rolled into the subject at a, when he was stopped at a light and he just rolled into him at like maybe two miles an hour. But 
he must have seen some kind of opportunity here and he uh he went to the he didn't go to the hospital with ambulance he ended up going by himself and when they tried to kind of throw him out after they said okay we'll treat you here but there's nothing wrong with you he then stayed in the waiting room all night this is i got this from interviewing a nurse an emergency room nurse so because he wanted to be able to say he spent the night in the hospital and then he went and with his insurance company he put in these this claim that just went on and on that he had um in the accident he had uh broken he was wearing some collectible superman watch that was worth a lot of money he had some rare tea set from japan in the trunk he even went as far as he had a leg of lamb that got destroyed that was in the car it was a whole long list and that was just the beginning because then he put in a claim that he because of his back being injured he had to get permanent in in the wall air conditioning units put in his house because he could no longer play take them in and out of the window he needed to get a gardening landscaping service because he couldn't do it himself. He had to get a home health aide to bathe them several times a week. And the coup de gras was that he had claimed and what was the what was the most monetary uh, damages he was he was or, or compensation he was seeking was because he said that he could no longer perform sexually and he had a a, um, a notarized statement from his fiance attesting to that. But then as you, as you just start covering bases on how to handle things, you start names that are involved in it. You start just running those names to see if they come up anywhere. And two of the names showed up as police department employees. The person that he had listed as the home health aide and the person he had listed as his fiance. They, and it both, you know, uh, miraculously, both of them also worked in the same unit that he worked in. And it didn't take too long to determine that the home health aide, who really did have, this is why he probably did it, she really did have a New York State home health aide license, but she hadn't gone and done any kind of uh, sponge bathing for him. She, he had just, she, she gave a statement that said that he had just said, you know, there's some money in it for you. If, uh, you just say that, you know, a couple of times a week, you uh, do have to perform this for me. And it turned out that the, uh, the fiance was not a fiance. It was just somebody that worked in the same office and the same thing. He had told her, look, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you say that we were engaged and uh, that I can't perform anymore. And they both folded very, very quickly. We, we did what is called in the... Uh, investigative jargon has offered them queen for a day where picked them up on the street and just said, look, you don't have to come with us. You don't have to talk with us, but it'd be in your best interest. And this is a one-time deal. If you do not talk to us now, you, you're not going to get this opportunity again. And they both talked and they both threw him under the bus really, really quickly. Right, and he was uh, yeah, he was a homosexual too. So like yes, so the whole idea this was a female yeah. that you know he was yeah. saying was the uh, that was the first thing she did. She laughed and he she said, uh, "Fiance, he's he's gay." <laughs> and so what I mean in your book, you kind of show what the outcomes are. So in some of these cases, the DA doesn't always prosecute, but there are uh, administrative 
steps that are taken, right? Yeah, there's really two, there's two steps in these processes that could be criminal. You go to within the district attorney's office, and in this case in Queens, there's a, a public, they call it a public integrity uh, department. They're the ones that actually work on cases that have anything to do with whether it's prosecuting a police officer or any other type of a, of a government worker. So you always have to go through them and keep them abreast. And then when you finally get, because you can't move administratively if there could possibly be a criminal aspect of it. You can't do those at the same time. So what happens is once, if, if, if there could be criminal, you go there first. And once the DA makes a decision, in this case, for whatever reason, the DA decided, nah, we don't want this. We're not going to do it. Then we go departmentally. And departmentally, um, he got fired. Which is, a, which is not an easy thing in, 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 in the police department. You have, to, you have to do something pretty heavy to actually lose your job, but he got fired. Right, because there's other things you said, like there's, there's misdemeanor or M cases or other yeah. things where the, the police could take other steps, right? So yes. not necessarily the environment. So unfortunately for him, he uh, crossed that line. And you had other cases. You talk about the one guy who's a police officer who was had some suspicious connections to a chop shop. Can you kind of explain what that is and what he did and why you investigated him? Okay, um, the allegation that came in was that this particular police officer had ties with a, um, an auto body shop that had organized crime connections. And it was, in looking at it, it was a known chop shop that it, it, it had several uh, complaints in uh, auto crime. Now, a chop shop is a, on face value, it's an auto body uh, shop, but in reality, it's actually taking in stolen cars, chopping them up for parts, and then they're getting rid of the parts and it makes it appear as if the car never existed and they have some kind of an avenue to actually dispose of or sell these parts, uh, you know, um, in the black market of, of auto parts. Right, and some so, of those parts are super expensive. They yes, did some car thefts yes. here. They were just taking rear view mirrors from uh, Mercedes Benz's and each one of those mirrors is like on the uh, street. My value was like crazy, 350 bucks or something like that. So yeah, the resale and, value is very expensive. In my area right now, I don't know if this is nationwide or just New York wise. Um, there's a big thing now with catalytic converters getting uh, taken out of cars. Oh, that's here so, too. Yeah, so in these California are, um, too. You know, it's always going to be the, you know, the auto parts industry is always going to have this criminal aspect to it. But in this case, you know, it's one of these things where you kind of hope you can get this off the merry-go-round quickly. And because it's very vague as far as that allegation goes. So the easy way to do this is to just watch that, that shop for a little while and see if this guy ever shows up there. And the problem was after a couple of days, sure enough, he does show up there and he does spend several hours in there. Um, and actually with sending, so actually I was the one that went inside and made like, I was looking for some kind of servicing for my car or repair work. And it did appear that he was actually more than just some kind of a customer in there. So now, you know, we have to do this full blown with surveillance and, uh, seeing what he does. And that's where it got a little more complicated because what didn't make sense. And still to this day, it doesn't make sense is in in doing the surveillance of him, it turned out that he was going to LaGuardia Airport a lot, a lot to the point that, and we would always lose him in there. And we were wondering where he was going. 
and it turned out he was actually working for one of the airlines in there, working as a baggage handler. And so now you have the question if, um, you know, if this guy is hooked up with OC, um, what's he doing hauling bags at the airport? But um, we ended up uh, in, in all the surveillance of this guy. He was, you know, on face reality, who was a happily married family man. But everything that we saw during our surveillances, you do what's called a lifestyle and you see where he goes, what he does, who he associates with. One of the profiles that was coming through loud and clear is that he was a real ladies man. So what we decided to do to bring this to a head was that since he always parked his truck in the same place, which was a public, public municipal parking field at the airport, we tried to create a situation where there would be a female in distress that he could come to her aid. So we were able to get a rental car parked right next to his truck and we disabled that car. There was a, uh, just a, a switch in the, in the trunk that disabled the uh, gas. I think, it's, I think it's there, I'm no car guy, but I think it's if there was ever an accident, an impact, and it would stop the gas from flowing and you'd have less chance of some kind of a fire. But if you just flipped a switch, it would stop the gas flow. So naturally, if you're start, trying to start the car, it's not gonna turn over. So we had an undercover, there was a unit within IAB that did just that, it supplied undercovers for investigations. And he had a female undercover that uh, was wired up. So we could, we were sitting maybe hundred yards away in the lot. We could hear the conversation going on. And when he returned from his shift, we were gonna have her there trying to start the car and unable to start the car and standing with the hood up and looking very you know, uh, confused and hoping he would actually come to a raid and then that his instincts would go from there. And it worked, it worked a little too well that first night because after about five minutes of conversation, he actually offered to take the car back to his shop. And one of the other things I'm leaving out is she was throwing in there innuendos like, this car has been nothing but a money pit for me. I wish I could get rid of it. And he actually offered to take it back to his shop. And the sergeant that I'm sitting with when we're listening there is like, okay, you know, it's your call. What are we going to do? Because uh, that's the one thing I hadn't planned on. I hadn't planned on him offering to take it right there because now I have visions of we rented this car. We don't tell the rental company what we're using it for. And I had visions of now, first off, that he's going to have to be taking this undercover inside this shop. And I wasn't comfortable with that. And secondly, now, by the time I got a warrant and got in there, that car could be in a million pieces. And so I, we had a thing worked out where we had a cell phone with the sergeant calling her up and playing the role of her brother and saying, so she could say, first off, he was able to tell her, no, don't go through with this and tell him that your brother's coming to pick you up here now. So it's okay. But he took her phone number and we were hoping he was going to call her. And sure enough, he did. So they went out on a date and that we had the whole thing again, wired up. We have teams in different restaurants in this area. Cause we told her, look, if he wants to bounce from one restaurant to another, make sure that you go from here to here. So they can always keep eyes on you. And um, she was wired up and we got a lot of interesting stuff on the, uh, on that on that recording um you know he had um 
excuse me with that he had he had said that uh in the there that he had he had uh did have some type of an interest in that uh in that um that auto body shop yeah. and that one of the first week or two that he was in there that some guys came in and said um where your new uh you know uh, waste disposal uh, company. And he said, I don't need a waste disposal company. I came in and took this over and there's a waste disposal company here. And they said, I don't think you're reading us. We're your new waste disposal company. And he said, get out of here. I don't need you. And he said about an hour later, he's in the office. It's at night. And all of a sudden his front window gets sprayed with automatic gunfire, machine gunfire, which he's hitting the floor and uh, hoping he doesn't get hit. Um, you know, so I had a lot of stuff on, on the uh, on the on the audio recording like that, um, and you know it was you know he had a lot of similar statements like that too. But it ended up where he he wouldn't really commit to taking the car that night because he was more focused on his date, and it was starting to get. She even called from the bathroom once that she's getting uncomfortable. It's starting to get very physical. So I knew I had to, I had to cut this off and uh, try to do it another day. And she was able to get away from him that night without, you know, any damage, let's say, but um, it just never, she tried a few times to get another day, but I don't know what he was, if he was getting raised up or anything, but never got it going again to the point where I said, no, nah, it's got to get off the merry go round here. So we closed this by just bringing him in and they call it a GO 15 where you officially interrogate the individual, uh, um, you know, for departmental purposes. And I'm also leaving one thing important out all the surveillances we did at the airport where we could see him out working, hauling bags on the uh, tarmac. And this was during uh, the summer. It must've been over a hundred degrees out in that tarmac. And over the couple of weeks we did this surveillance, he was out sick from the police department at the time, which that's actually a pretty heavy departmental uh, violation where, you know, you're not only are you working a job, the second job that you don't have authorization for, where you need, if you're going to work a part-time job, you need to get departmental authorization for it, which he didn't have. And he was out sick working that job. So, you know, that was another issue that actually sunk him more because when we, in, when we interrogated him, we did that official interview, I got to give him credit because he was one of these guys that was really cool as a cucumber. Like when, uh, when I actually played the tape for him, where he's talking about the machine gun fire, um, he just sat back and he said, Lieutenant, what do you want me to say? You know, I like to impress girls. I go out with them. Sometimes I tell them I'm a cowboy. Sometimes I tell them I'm, a, I'm involved with organized crime because I'm, I'm a bullshit artist with the girls. What do you want me to say? You know, so it was actually, it was a pretty good answer, actually, because and he, he showed up with his attorney too, right? So, I mean, yeah, yeah, union attorney with that, yeah. But he was in so trouble. Depart actually, departmental, it was the same thing. He, he couldn't, uh, he had no way out of that being out sick. And he ended up also, he got fired with that because that was, that was a kind of a heavy duty thing with being out sick with, uh, with on an open, working another job for several weeks out sick with no authorization. 
Right. So, I mean, being sick, you have to like fill out forms and things like that. You actually have to with the police department, you actually have to stay in your house because since since the NYPD has unlimited sick, you don't have 12 sick days, 20 sick days. That's the beauty of it. You could be sick for months and months and you just have unlimited sick. But there are a lot of controls on that. So when you call out sick, you have to stay in your primary residence and you have to call a sick desk to get permission to actually leave, to go to a drugstore, to go get something to eat. And there are actually investigators, sergeants that go out and visit. They'll knock on a door to wow. make sure the person's home. So this sick leave is a big thing with the with the police department. Wow, really interesting. And there's other controls. Like you're also doing these integrity testings to see if these people are uh, engaging corrupt behavior. Can you talk about some of the, the things that you did to kind of to see if police officers remained on the up and up? Yeah, that was that was kind of a, <laughs> there were a lot, there was, I mean, this IAB experience for two years for me was the greatest learning experience I had on the job during the 20 years. But there was some distasteful parts to it. And this integrity testing was one because the main thing was it took up time from trying to work these cases because you had to do, I forget if it was one a month or a couple of months, but every team had to do these integrity tests where you would set up an artificial circumstance to try to see if the cop would do the right thing or the wrong thing. And it was, sometimes it was very difficult to set these things up. So we used to do what we called throwing a bag where you'd have a, a lady's pocketbook and we had a lot of different props and we'd throw like purses with identification, all kinds of things that would make it look like a lady's active pocketbook. And we throw cash in there. And then we either, let's say, have, a, have one of our guys who had rented a cab that would now pull over, get the attention of, uh, of, of some cops either on patrol or in a, or in a vehicle, an RMP and say, hey, a lady a while back, I just noticed that she left this in the cab or call in an anonymous 911 call for a very benign, very, you gotta be careful with this. Couldn't be a serious, you couldn't say there was a robbery in progress or something, but just something like it may look like somebody selling drugs in a park or something, something that's gonna prompt a response and then have you know, a bag sitting there and, you know, the, the one that I remember is because we tried to get away from just throwing the bag because the CEO at the time was having a problem with that. Everything, everybody was going out, all the teams were going out and just using handbags, throwing bags. So we did a little variation of it. We got some simulated narcotics pills in a bag, just then we put them in a brown bag and put it um, in a, uh, tr next to a trash can in a public park in Queens and then called in uh, a job on 911 that, uh, you know, a suspected drug deal. And just, we're gonna, you know, sit back. We had a surveillance van that was useless and uh, sit back and see what happens that they, you know, what, what should happen is the cops show up, they take the bag that has the pills and we had cash inside the bag also. They take it back. And then a day later, we go to the command and there should be what's called a voucher, a property clerk's invoice that shows that there were simulated narcotics and X amount of dollars that were, that were vouchered. Um, and in this case, ultimately that happened, but there was, um, while this call was out there, there were 
a couple of more serious jobs that went over the air in this sector, a, a motor vehicle accident with injuries, which is natural. They're going to go to that first. So myself and the sergeant that I was with were in this surveillance van that was insanely hot inside of it and um, trying to hopefully, you know, that they were going to show up, uh, you know, sometime soon. And, you know, during the time he's uh, doing all kinds of things to keep busy, you know, going back and forth in the van. And uh, there was, it was in a park. There was somebody that pulled up next to us. And since the van was sitting up higher, I could actually see out through this little peephole thing there that uh, the guy was sitting there, older gentleman was sitting there. Looks like he's just reading the paper. But at one point, I also noticed that it looked like he took note of the fact that the van was rocking back and forth because he was just getting very antsy inside there and kind of moving back and forth, my partner was. So finally, finally, the cops show up. They, they, they go to where this report was for the trash can. They see the bag. They look inside. They take it, and they leave. So we can finally come out. We open the door. We're drenched in sweat. And then as we uh, are, are standing there, all of a sudden, this guy that was next to us, he backs out and goes to leave. And as he's leaving, he just looks at us and he yells, you freaks. And it took a minute for me to understand what was going on there. And it was actually the sergeant, my partner, who started cracking up and got it. He said, this guy just thinks, he goes, he's sitting there and he's seeing this van rocking back and forth. And then he sees two sweat-soaked guys come piling out of the side of the van. He says, he thinks we've been, we've been sitting in this park's parking lot in there having a good time with each other back, back there. And, right. uh, <laughs> it's funny because you, there are these funny moments all through this, this book, like you guys make, you know, have jokes for each other and, uh, you can see the kind of camaraderie and things to do while you're doing the job. I think that comes through in the book. There's yeah. a lot more in the book too. I mean, you cover a murder case, shoplifting, all kinds of really variety of different challenges. It was really interesting. That was the thing with IEB why I said it was the greatest learning experience because, you know, just like you have, like I said, a microcosm society, just like you have murders in society somewhere in the NYPD with 40,000 people, you've got a murderer there too, you know? And uh, so one day, you know, we're working a murder case. The next day we're working a drug case. The next day we're working a fraud case. It ran the gamut of all these different investigations. It's really fascinating. Like you heard the stories about the internal investigation groups, but this is really the insight. So I recommend people check this out. Where's the best place to get this book, Robert? Amazon. And go on to my, uh, my author page and just look up Look up Robert O'Brien on, on Amazon and you'll find that book and my other books. Yeah, tons of other books too. How many books have you written at this point? I'm close to 30 right now. I wow, think. yeah. It was a long list. And uh, do you have like social media or? Um, yeah, I, I do have, um, I have a, uh, I have a Facebook page, Robert O'Brien, and I also have a group that I moderate, Police Books. And I do have a website, uh, Robert Bryan Author. Robert Bryan author. If people yes. want to reach out to you, they can do it through that website, yeah, robertbellbryan.com. Really interesting book and conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Again, the title of the book is Sea Case, An Unlikely Journey from Transit Cop to Internal Affairs 
Bureau Squad Commander by Robert L. Bryan. And there's a lot more stories and things in there. So people take that step and go check out this book. So thanks so much for your time, Robert. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care.